The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Mm, so, good evening, everyone, and probably should be a little bit louder. Let, let's see, is that, that loud enough now? Not, still not loud enough? I think that, uh, let's see, that's probably, that's good? Okay. So, so since the uh, uh, beginning of the year, I've been uh, giving an introduction to Buddhism, series of Dharma talks, and this is the fourth one in the series. And today I want to talk about uh, the Eightfold Path, the Noble Eightfold Path. Uh, this is the set of practices that are probably most associated with Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism, early Buddhism. And um, there are eight sets of practices. And, um, and so they're called, together they comprise something called the path, the magga. And um, sometimes they're called uh, the noble, eightfold path. And this word noble is a, a very powerful word in Buddhism and it refers to um, not the nobility of the Eightfold Path but the association of the Eightfold Path with noble people. Um, it's the Eightfold Path of the Noble Ones or the Noble One. And, um, and uh, when a person becomes uh, awakened, when they've somehow been liberated from greed, hate, and delusion, liberated from their attachments, then they have become a noble person. And it's understood to be a transformation that uh, bestows on a person a certain kind of nobility or certain kind of kind of um, dignity or value that, um, that is held up in, in great esteem in Buddhism, uh, not to just esteem people, but to really recognize the tremendous benefit and value of being someone who's uprooted um, some of the negative forces that can affect the mind and the heart as we live here. And it's all too easy to go around the world, around our life, uh, with all kinds of negative influences uh, getting the upper hand of us. Uh, you know, it's, I mean, not I want to be petty exactly, but it's uh, certainly easy to end up in rush hour traffic and start getting irritated and being annoyed and impatient. Um, and that would be considered kind of a negative, kind of unwholesome kind of qualities to be living in. It's, it's uh, that impatience and irritation would be considered a form of suffering oneself. You know, you hurt, you hurt yourself if you do that. And um, greed is considered to be a kind of negative thing because it hurts the person who's greedy. And, um, and so it goes on and on. Hate hurts the person who's hateful. And so uh, the idea to really, it's possible to change, in, in a sense, to make kind of dramatic language, uh, change the personality, change our character or change the underlying operating system of what motivates us and moves us through the world. So we don't have to be stuck with um, the usual ways of being irritated or angry or resentful or uh, annoyed or 
just kind of, ju- you know, critical of uh, judgmental of things in a kind of harsh way. Or to be uh, annoyed or angry or hateful or to be filled with greed and desire and craving and wanting and addiction. Um, and those can be all small things uh, and they can be huge monumental things. Uh, some of them are deadly for oneself and for other people. They have tremendous forces of, in our lives, in our society. Most of what we, uh, probably the newspapers would go out of business if um, uh, people stopped acting in negative ways. That's kind of what the part and parcel of most new, you know, news on the front page is because someone was operating under greed, hate, and delusion. Uh, and um, and uh, so to uproot that really is a radical transformation and change. And so it's called noble, a noble person to attain that. And it points to the idea that uh, what, what uh, Buddhism is looking for is in fact a personal change. It's not a, a, a message of just simply accept your life as it is, relax, chill, uh, be Zen, you know, just kind of like, you know, just kind of live in a kind of steady, you know, intentional way and just be cool with everything. Um, uh, that would be, I think, um, uh, a caricature or it would be a kind of diminishment of the full potential of what this religion is about, which is, a, uh, it kind of involves a transformation, a change. Uh, to really become a different person in the process of doing it. And, uh, and so this Eightfold Path um, is uh, a path to that change, and it's also uh, the path to being that change. And what I mean by that uh, is, can be explained by how th- there are three different levels of the Eightfold Path, or three different phases of uh, the first one would be that someone who's not a noble person, someone who's not been transformed, hears about the, uh, the possibility of somehow uh, suffering less, maybe even coming to the end of their suffering. They have some idea that uh, Buddhism offers a set of practices and teachings that really will help their life. And, and, uh, and so for whatever reason, they kind of uh, give the tradition a little bit of benefit of the doubt and they try out the practices. Um, Many people here in the West will start off uh, with a Buddhist practice by doing meditation. And other uh, cultures, uh, other other factors of the Eightfold Path are emphasized. And oftentimes it's the ethical pieces of the Eightfold Path um, that people start doing that first. And then later they get around to do meditation. There was an inspiring story that, or event that I had where I, many years ago, almost uh, 25, 30 years ago, I was teaching a class um, on Buddhism to, well, I think everyone there was a Buddhist. And, um, and there was one woman who, um, um, you know, was relatively new to the group. And um, I asked her one day if she meditated. And she said something that uh, really struck me. I was kind of surprised. She said, I'm not yet ready and worthy to meditate. I'm, I'm preparing myself so that I'm worthy of meditation itself. And I'm like, what? You have to prepare yourself, you know, make yourself worthy. 
And uh, I was kind of like, don't you just start, you know, it's such a great thing, just begin. And uh, so she was uh, kind of cleaning up her ethical life, making sure she lived in a wise, uh, kind, ethical way, uh, and be stabilized in that, be steady in that, so that then she was kind of ready to do this meditation path. And whether that's needed to do it that sequence, I don't know, maybe for her it was, but that's one traditional way to do it. And I was really inspired by the faith, dedication, and the seriousness she gave to the path of practice, that she would actually kind of clean up her ethics before she would take an intuitive meditation class. And um, many people in the West, they do the other way around. They do meditation, and through meditation they discover in themselves a different way of wanting to live. And then in that different way of living, then they become interested in the ethical teachings of the, of the Buddha. Not because ethics are obligatory, but because the ethical path has now is, um, uh, represents the inner integrity, the inner goodness that we're discovering. And it's a way we want to live uh, because it seems like the, the sanest uh, way to live. So, um, uh, so someone comes to, whatever reason, they come to Buddhism and they were interested in trying it out. And some people will hear, well, these try out the Eightfold Path, these eight sets of practices. If a, so they're, then they're understood as a path to liberation. A person practices them to some point and they recognize in themselves the Eightfold Path they recognize in themselves something about what these eight practices are about. So that we, they don't, they're no longer something you're importing from the outside, something you have to do and learn and everything, but rather you recognize, oh, that's really at the core of who I am. That's really inside, is really that, living that way by the Eightfold Path, that really you know, is kind of, uh, I recognize myself in them. Or they recognize something deep inside of me corresponds to these eight sets of practices. Not perfectly, but there's something that corresponds. So, so they no longer are something outside, but they become inside of ourselves. Then uh, as a person then starts um, fleshing this out, filling it out for themselves, uh, taking what they found inside and expanding it, um, becoming more whole in it, integrating into their whole being, their whole life, then at some point um, they come to the third stage uh, or phase of the Eightfold Path and they become the Eightfold Path. So first we import it, then we recognize it in ourselves, and then we become it, the Eightfold Path. And, uh, and it's when we become the Eightfold Path that uh, the, the more uh, technical named Noble Eightfold Path has been realized. You become a noble person. And these, uh, uh, second, the, the second phase, there's, a, there's the idea that there's, uh, there's ordinary people and then there's two stages of maturation in the Eightfold Path is, uh, 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 is recognized from the ancient time and it's the most common way the Buddha talked about spiritual maturation was through these two stages. Uh, the, uh, so first is an ordinary person. And then the second stage, the person is called a trainee, someone who's training, a sekka. 
And um, and then uh, and then uh, it's, uh, the third stage is called aseka, a uh, non-trainee. Usually, they say something who's someone who's beyond training, someone who no longer needs to train because they become the eightfold path. And so, in uh, this idea that uh, when we recognize the eightfold path in ourselves, then we become a trainee. That's in in a kind of very te- technical language. So say it that way, so you don't get discouraged. Uh, uh, in a in a technical sense, a person begins their Buddhist practice when they recognize the truths of Buddhism are in themselves. Oh, I didn't. You know, it's there. It's always been there, but I didn't know it. And now I know what it is for myself. And when you know it for yourself, rather than from a book or from a Dharma talk then you know what you're working with. You know what it's about. And then you can begin actually doing, because you really know now, you can do the training, start doing the training in some more uh, embodied or, or integral way. And so, um, so three phases. And, um, and you see a little bit of this in the word that, it, um, that the word that's used as a, as a kind of a prefix before each of the Noble Eightfold Path factors. Each of them is called, the Pali word is Samma. And uh, usually it's translated as right. And so the first of the Eightfold Path is called right view, uh, Samma Ditti. And, um, and, the, and then using the English word right uh, is rather... Um, unsatisfactory for a, a good number of people in the West who don't want to be right and wrong. They want to be, and so uh, some people, some some Buddhist teachers now, rather than saying right, will say wise, um, the wise view, wise action, all these things. But the word sama uh, can mean right in the sense of proper, uh, or what's good, what's proper, what's Works. Um, it also, but it's a little bit of a powerful word, and it could also mean uh, complete. So uh, it's having the complete view, having the complete ethics, having the complete meditation, having you know it's complete. So so um, so complete has a very different feeling than right. Uh, it could also uh, mean something like uh, coming together to unify, especially uh, in the Sanskrit version of the word. And so to come together or to unify, it's the unified practices. It's the practices that work together to create a whole of, um, of uh, being in touch with something that has great value inside of ourselves. So, um, so we're, we're looking to take these eight practices and make ourselves whole, make ourselves complete, make ourselves um, proper in a certain way. Um, and so then we, we either engage in the practices or we recognize them themselves and we develop them within us. So these eight sets of practices, the first one is called right view. Uh, kind, of a, kind of, maybe you could say the right perspective the second one is right attitude. 
The third is right speech. The fourth is right action. Then right, it's usually said in English, right livelihood, but that's a little confusing. I'll say more about that. Right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And and, uh, right view, when you're importing it in the beginning, is just what you learn a perspective you learn to bring to your practice. When you've uh, come to the next level, when you recognize it in yourself, uh, then it becomes uh, not imported, but something you really see in yourself, really understand for yourself personally, in direct experience. And what we can, and there's a number of things we can know deeply. One of them is that we can know that if you cling, to something, if you really hold on tight and are attached, that you will suffer. There's no way around it. Partly because clinging itself is a kind of suffering. And you know, you can you can kind of feel that when the intense when the, when the clinging is really intense, really holding on to something, really having wanting it. Or you can see it in someone else, they hold on to something and it's just, you know, it's a challenge for everyone else. This is suffering. You can see it in them. And so the... um, um, But this idea of really knowing for yourself, seeing for yourself that if you hold on tight to something, you're craving something, or you're resisting it really hard, how that hurts is, you know, certainly, certainly valuable to see. More valuable is to experience for yourself what it's like to release the clinging, to really let go of it, and to experience the peace that comes when we're no longer holding on tight. And I think that's one of the reasons some people like meditation. In ordinary life, we go around and we're kind of working ourselves up, we're busy doing all kinds of things, and there can be a lot of preoccupation and a lot of um, uh, contraction, a lot of worry, a lot of anxiety, a lot of exhaustion in a constant activity of desiring or wanting or protecting or hiding or angry or something. And in meditation, to have these stressful states relax and quiet down, for some people is a revelation. There is another way. To have the, this, this relaxation, this letting go, happen in a very dramatic way, so you really recognize this is really at the heart of who I want to be or who I am to be free in this way and have this deep inner kind of peace and to know that for yourself and know that this is possible is to have right view. Oh, I can, I know this now. And I want to, this is, you know, this, this way in which I'm no longer so contracted, so afraid, so angry, so greedy, so consumed with my thoughts and ideas and past and future but you said it's all all this it's been cleared away the heart's been kind of emptied of all this extra negativity and lo and behold i have a good heart in there lo and behold there's some goodness or peace or there's something that feels like it ha- it's healthy something deep inside that feels that it has integrity or authenticity or it has goodness or it has 
at homeness. Then we've kind of come home to ourselves in some deep way. And to have experienced something like this, maybe initially it's you know just a hint of it. Wow, this is good. This feels right. This is where I want to live. This is how I want to have my life, my life, what I want to be the center of my life. I don't want to have greed, desire, fear, uh, preoccupation, distracted mind, be <clears throat> be my you know where I take up residence and where I live my life. I want to take a residence in this settled heart where I can feel at home in something like that. And um, and so to to be changed enough by the practice to taste this possibility inside of oneself, then we have then the, the trainee has a right view because they know something for themselves. And probably most of you, if you've meditated for any length of time, <clears throat> have touched something, otherwise you wouldn't keep meditating, something that is of value, something about, something shifted for you or settled for you or open for you, that uh, you say, oh, this is good, this is great. <clears throat> so now you know something, you know what, there's something you want to, something inside of you, you recognize something. And so then you're interested in how do you fill this out? How do you continue? How do you s- develop this further? Well, it happens, it helps, if you, it helps if you have the right attitude. And so to recognize that some attitudes are not helpful and some attitudes are helpful to have. And we train ourselves to kind of cultivate the attitudes which are useful. The attitudes of, of uh, ill will, of aversion, of just being kind of mean and annoyed with everyone else or oneself is not a very, it's not an attitude that is conducive towards this right view, towards this freedom or this peace that we can experience. The, uh, the idea, the attitude of wanting sensual pleasures, just always want to be comfortable and pleasures and have just pleasant experiences and lots of sex and whatever it might be, None of those things are wrong, but to be consumed by those things, uh, actually, you can, if you have in touch with some sense of deep inner well-being, you can actually feel that the pursuit of sensual pleasure actually clouds it over. You kind of lose touch with something that's better than sensual pleasures. The pursuit of them, at least, the craving for them. And, um, <clears throat> and meanness, attitude of meanness also doesn't work. Uh, as a way of kind of giving voice or giving space for this new way of living. So what attitudes are useful? Uh, one, one of them is uh, attitudes of kindness. Another is attitudes of compassion and non-harming. Another one, which is not so popular automatically, is an attitude of letting go, of renunciation. But uh, once you kind of know for yourself what it's like to let go of stressful states of mind, then you understand how good it is to let go. Not as a way of diminishing ourselves and and ending up with less. There's a way of, when you know the Eightfold Path in yourself, then letting go is actually an enhancing of oneself. It's almost like we get bigger by, uh, by letting go in the right way. 
if the goodness inside of you is known, and what you're doing is letting go into that goodness, it just grows. So understanding how certain attitudes that we carry with us, we walk around we, we, with certain attitudes, and that whatever we're doing are sometimes influenced by the attitude, the, the lens of attitude that we have, part of the Eightfold Path is to begin seeing if we can shift our attitudes about things, shift towards kindness, towards non-harming, shift towards uh, letting go rather than wanting more. And then we also begin understanding that how we speak is actually quite important. Uh, most people speak more than they steal or kill. We do a lot of uh, talking. And talking turns out to be very influential. Um, it has a big impact on ourselves and a big impact on the world around us. And how we speak affects whether we're in touch with this beautiful place inside and come from it, or whether we obscure it and hide it. So if we talk in mean ways, we obscure the goodness inside. We lose touch with it. If we talk the truth, we reveal it. If we talk uh, lies, we obscure it and lose the connection to it. Uh, if we talk in supportive, kind ways to other people, it tends to, and, come from, and really come from that place inside, that good, goodness inside kind of can grow. If we talk in mean ways to people, then that closes down. Uh, and so this idea of being careful with our speech, not necessarily because it, where it's moralistic to do so, but for a trainee who knows something, has recognized something in themselves, um, uh, right speech has a lot to do with living in integrity or living in harmony with this what we know that we want to support inside of ourselves. We want to enhance it and grow it and develop it. And then there's uh, right action, which is uh, explained as uh, not killing, not stealing, and not engaging in sexual misconduct. And again, it's possible to look at those as being of ethical in nature. But if you say it's ethical to do those things, Many people see them as something almost external rules that now you have to follow. And, um, and for a trainee, it's not a rule, but rather it's a recognition that if you do those things, kill, steal, or engage in intentional causing harm through your sexuality, uh, that that's one of these things, these are things which obscure and close down the connection we have to this inner peace, well-being, what we've recognized. And so then it becomes kind of natural to not do those things if what we want to do is come from this place of goodness inside. And if we want to grow it, then the Eightfold Path and right action is the way to do it. Right livelihood, uh, the fifth factor of the Eightfold Path, is more like the right a way of life. Because anything in English, many people think of livelihood as their, as their work, their career, how they make money. And then when we retire, someone doesn't have a livelihood anymore. Mm-hmm. Or if you're a student, you don't have to worry about livelihood because, <laughs> you know, you haven't gotten around to it yet. And, um, but rather, it's the right way of living in the world, kind of the general way in which we live our life. And um, so someone who's retired has a way of living how they participate in the world and 
consume and produce and, you know, do what they do. And a student also has a livelihood, the, livelihood, the, the way of life of a student. And so uh, for people, that's kind of like a big part of our life is the, how we live. And so we want to live in a way that's in harmony with this possibility of freedom, inner freedom that we can have. Uh, again, for someone who's not a trainee, it might sound like just we learn these teachings, we learn these ideas of what is the right way of living, and then we kind of take it on because we've been told it's a good idea. But what's really exciting is when we become a trainee, when we've recognized something inside of ourselves, we know something for ourselves, and we can feel and recognize that um, behaving in a certain way Living, living our life in a certain way that's oblivi- oblivious at the harm our way of life has on the benefit, oblivious of the harm it causes to others, or living in a way that how we live is benefiting the world and leaving the world a better place. That that really kind of ner- one way diminishes our inner freedom and goodness; the other way enhances it. And then uh, the the sixth step is called right effort. And that's where this idea of having some inner reference point is really important. Because when you really are in touch with yourself, you can feel how some mental, some actions, some things we do by um, uh, body, speech, and mind, uh, darken that inner light. And other things we do brighten the inner light. Some things we do harm us. Some things we do uh, free us and bring us benefit. So uh, to start being really sensitive, more and more sensitive to how we act in the world and what we do and what we're trying to accomplish and what we're trying to, you know, something simple like how you drive your car. Do you drive your car in a way that by the time you get to your destination, you're kind of jangled because you've been, you know, you know, zipping around all the other cars, honking your horn, um, rushing through yellow lights, whatever you can do, you know, trying to get out of this, you know, from stop sign, from stop sign, screeching your tires and riding the bumper of the person in front of you. And, you know, just, you know, those kinds of ways of driving does not support the growth of this deep inner place of peace and well-being. There's probably another way of driving which, which, which driving, which does. And so to be sensitive, to really feel the difference between that and to avoid the, those activities that diminish the inner well-being and to develop those and do those which enhance it. And this is a fascinating part of the Eightfold Path to actually become a very careful, uh, 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 sensitive and careful and, and more and more and more of the things you do, how you do, that how, what I'm doing right now, is it enhancing me in a good way and bringing more freedom, bringing more good qualities to me? Or is it diminishing my good qualities, my good character? And that can be as simple as how you choose to sit in a chair. Not to point my fingers at anyone here at all. It's just, it just what came to my mind. And um, it was one of the consequences of spending three years at a Zen monastery, 
was when I came, after the three years in Zen monastery, um, where much of the daily life is choreographed, how you stand, how you sit, how you eat, how you bathe, you know, all this stuff is like, you know, describe what you do. And it's like a dance. Um, and I left, and suddenly I didn't have to do the choreographed behavior. And what it did for me was said, wow, I have a lot of choice. I didn't know I have so much choice. That I, and, and literally, I, I have a choice, I was kind of surprised, I have a choice about how I sit in the chair. It never had occurred to me when I was younger. I just sat in the chair and didn't think about it. And I could see that if, how I sat in the chair affected my presence, how attentive I was or not attentive, how much I felt more confident and how much I sunk in and lost my confidence. And so this right effort, you can pay attention, you can become sensitive to the impact your behavior has. And the more settled and grounded you are, the more that reference point for that feeling that and being guided by that can occur. Right mindfulness uh, is the core practice we do. Um, Harmonious mindfulness, unified mindfulness, complete mindfulness, that the ability to really be present for our life. In some ways, mindfulness can be understood as presence. To really be present for experience, to recognize it, to know it, to bring our awareness into our life. And awareness has a lot of really good qualities, a lot of benefits. One of them is when you're really settled in awareness, awareness functions a little bit like a um, uh, creating space, breathing room, for what is good inside of us to flourish. When we are distracted and not mindful, caught up and lost, it's kind of like a recipe for what is unhealthy or negative or not useful inside of us to flourish. It's kind of, I liken it to, uh, you know, if you have, have a curtain or uh, uh, that covers over a greenhouse and it's hot and humid in the greenhouse and but no light comes in, it's a recipe for mildew and mold and all kinds of strange things to grow, not the plants you want to have grow. But if you move the curtains away and have the sunlight come in, then um, that kind of makes it too hot and dry or something for the mold and the mildew. And so then the plants you want have light and they can grow. Somehow that's what mindfulness does. Is it's that powerful for us that the kind of like the light of awareness develops and enhances the best qualities inside of us. The lack of attention tends to... Uh, 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 foster the growth of what is kind of negative and not healthy in us. We don't see what's unha- unhealthy and we don't see it and it's there. It tends to have a heyday. It's e- more easier for it to kind of continue unabated. With mindfulness, it's seen and then we have more choice. So I don't want to do that. And then we have room for other things to happen. And then finally, there's a right concentration. And right, right concentration is uh, a a practice of becoming really unified, of not being fragmented from ourselves, but but kind of gathering together all the desperate parts of who we are and making them whole so that this inner well-being, goodness, freedom we discovered that's maybe just a kernel at first, 
uh, can fill itself out into all parts of who we are. Concentration has many benefits in practice, but this one of being the unifying, the gathering together, so that there's a chance for all these different parts of ourselves to work together in harmony with this level, this, this inner peace, well-being, freedom that we've discovered. And then as that becomes fuller and fuller, then at some point it becomes stable inside of ourselves. And the person has had to become a, no longer a trainee beyond training when they have become the Eightfold Path. And what that means is that it isn't that you have imported something from the outside and become you know, someone you're not, but rather uh, all the kind of um, uh, uh, attachments we have that are the obstac- obstacles f- uh, to the, f- uh, the free expression of the Eightfold Path that lives in us have been removed. That uh, to, to no longer need to be trained means that inner goodness has flowered so fully that of course you're not going to um, harm. Of course you're not going to do the things which harm yourself, the wrong effort. Of course you're going to kind of naturally want to be present because being present and mindful is kind of like, you know, at some point becomes the most natural and satisfying thing to do. It's who you are rather than something you have to practice. Of course you'll be concentrated if the conditions are there because that's a way of coming home to oneself. Of course you have right speech because anything else it just doesn't occur to you. You, you know, it doesn't, it's, not, it's not who you are anymore to have it. And so there's a metaphor or, or analogy, kind of simile that the Buddha uses uh, that's, uh, uh, that kind of represents the power maybe of doing this Eightfold Path. He said that um, in the high Himalayan, Himalayan mountains, there's a, uh, a, a, a species of nagas. A naga is kind of like a, a serpent. And, uh, and up there in the high Himalayas, they acquire lots of strength. They become strong. And then when they're strong enough, they begin uh, flowing down the, the creeks, streams, the rivers, through the lakes, out into uh, the vast ocean where they become um, 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 expansive gr- or great and abundant in their body. So they become physically great and abundant. So that's, that's, this, that's the analogy. Then the Buddha said, in the same way, a person who's established in virtue by practicing the Eightfold Path will similarly flow into and become great and abundant in their, in their mental qualities, in their inner qualities of being. And this idea that this path is one that makes us abundant in good inner states of being, inner, inner qualities. That this state makes us in certain way kind of great qualities. It's not, it's not a path 
to becoming Mr. Nobody. Sometimes in Buddhism, there's a lot of emphasis on letting go and not self and letting go of self and all that. And it's a little bit of a message, it can be heard as a message of that you don't kind kind of count. You're not supposed to be have any impact on anyone. You're kind of supposed to be almost invisible. The opposite is the case. That uh, uh, people who become noble have no conceit. So they don't, certainly, and they have no attachment to self. They don't use the language or the, the ideas of self to organize themselves and how they go around the world. So that's what the not-self is. But they have become abundant there's a greatness or expansiveness in people who become free. And the expansiveness, the greatness, has to do with that little kernel that was recognized in themselves that, were, that made them a trainee has now grown and grown and grown in them and it becomes who they are. And so there's a feeling of abundance, not a feeling of, you know, lack. And so the Eightfold Path is the way to become a great serpent. (laughs) If you like that. And um, so the Eightfold Path, there are beautiful qualities, beautiful practices that if you can first just practice them, practice them long enough that um, and sincerely enough that you begin recognizing something that's always been there in you, just waiting. Something that you recognize when you finally begin to relax, open up, settle down, somehow start kind of finding yourself uh, living in the world differently than how you were before. And then you become a trainee. Then, you know, then, then no one can take it away from you. Then the Buddha could come back and he could walk into IMC and say, hey, you guys, um, I was wrong. This is, you know, it's all wrong. Just forget everything I thought. And you would just look at him and say, well, okay, for, it might be okay for you, but I know something for myself. I have this little seed inside of something really special, some... And there's many ways it could be called, you know, freedom, peace, well-being, a place of home, integrity, authenticity, many ways. Different people call it something else, but it's still something we recognize inside of ourselves. And so Mr. Buddha, well, it's okay that I know something and I'm going to take that what I know and that's going to be the perspective I use for how I live my life, my view, my right view. And I'm going to grow it and develop it because that seems like one of the most wonderful things to do in life. And it'll make me, hopefully, a person that will leave the world a better place. So, the Noble Eightfold Path. So, I hope that uh, this practice that we do here will help you not so much be a different person, but for you to discover who you really are and then let that flower in a beautiful way. May the Eightfold Path become you. May you. Thank you. <laughs>